0: I want to start today with one of my favorite stories about the style of Sunday service that we do here. Some of you know this already, but I can repeat it over and over again because it really brings it home. About five years ago, we were just sort of kind of getting our our worship feet under ourselves. A family came to Wellsprings for the first time. After that first song block, I think we did a Rolling Stones song or Indigo Girls. Little kid looks up his parent, says, Mom, we're singing a real song. (laughs) The realness. That's why we choose the songs that we do, and wow. I mean, just. (laughs) When I don't got it, you all bring the charge of the soul, so thank you. I got to tell you, I went for years, years and years and years of worship services of singing the old hymns, and I don't miss them. I mean, there's a few that we do. I mean, we do some of the classics. This land is your land and Amazing Grace and Will the Circle Be Unbroken. We do it in that unique Wellsprings band style that is so wonderfully our own. I don't miss those old hymns. I am, every once in a while, grateful, every once in a while, that I know them, however. And I had a lesson in this this past week. When I saw the movie for today, when I saw Brave and kind of coalescing all the themes in the movie was the final song that they used. It wasn't the words of the traditional hymn, but it was very much the melody. It's called, though I may speak with bravest fire, and it's taken from Paul's great love poem, which he's not talking about romantic love. He's talking about that deep spiritual love of the heart and of the soul that helps us really connect with each other. In his letter to the Corinthians and the Christian scriptures. And the lyrics in that traditional hymn go, though I may speak with bravest fire and have the gifts to all inspire, but have not love. My words are vain as sounding brass and hopeless gain. That's the meaning of today's movie. The greatest bravery is to learn to love ourselves, certainly, but not ourselves alone love real deep transforming love calls us out into the lives of other people to connect and I do have to say when I was watching this movie it was far from my favorite Pixar movie I mean they set a really really high bar to reach I mean it wasn't anywhere near as visionary as Wally it wasn't nearly as cute or clever as Nemo I didn't find it that way but I must say that the movie really stayed with me and not simply because it had if you just saw it up here, a red-headed hero. I mean, I have to tell you, when you grow up with red hair, you pray that sometime you will see someone on the screen who is not Woody Allen with red hair. But it's deeper than that. The reason I really did enjoy this movie and it stayed with me is because of its vision. Its vision of a mature and connected freedom. That is so essential if we are going to grow into real deep maturity and emotional and spiritual wholeness. Now, the story is about a young princess, a young woman named Merida, who was a princess in Scotland many, many centuries ago. It's a little bit of a fable, a little bit of a fairy tale. And she is to be married, really not of her own choice, to a whole range of possibly unsuitable suitors, complete dorks ultimately in the movie as we find out. Now, she's very skilled as an archer, and so the competition to win her hand and unite the kingdom will be an archery competition. She shoots for her own hand and wins it. She is hemmed in by the gender roles of her time. She wants her life, not the life that she is obligated to have as a princess in her time and in her place. And really, who can blame her? It brought to mind for me one of the oldest stories that I have heard of this type. It's from free to be you and me. How many other children in the 70s do we have here or parents in the 70s? All right, so you might have some familiarity with this one. So, you know, I apologize if you don't know it. Hop in the way back with machine with me for a little bit right here. And it's the story of Atalanta through the telling of Free to Be You and Me. It's a story, again, of a young princess who finds herself having to be possibly betrothed to a whole bunch of unsuitable suitors. And instead of an archery competition, this time it's a road race. And she finds herself in the race and running neck and neck with another young man. And actually they finish the race together. Alan Alda, Marlo Thomas. Doesn't get any more 70s than that. (laughs) Now, it's nice to grow up on stories like that. That's a a good story. And it is very 70s. It's very I'm okay, you're okay. It's a story of individual empowerment. And the story stops there. That's how that story of happily ever after occurs. But Brave kind of takes that perspective on individual freedom and pans back. ...and pulls back and says, what about interpersonal freedom? What about cultural freedom? What about freedom, wider's freedom in this society? Brave does not stop at the level of individual empowerment. See, in Brave, the individual rebellion against an archaic and unfair tradition... ...Merida rebels against it with a certain amount of belligerence and impetuousness... ...which most rebels do, and it's understandable. Now, through her actions... The whole kingdom is imperiled. Her mother's life is imperiled. The kingdom almost falls into tribal warfare. So, what the story says is not that Merida's quest for independence is wrong at all. It's not wrong, it's quite right. It's just that her quest for individual independence as a goal in and of itself is incomplete. So at the end of the movie, she doesn't have to go back and marry the suitor, one of the unsuitable suitors, just to keep the kingdom together. No, there's a third choice. At the end, she realizes not just her freedom alone, but that also as a person who one day will rule that it is harmony within the realm that matters as much as her own freedom as well. As we leave the movie, we see that we have the creation of not just a young, wise princess, but the making of a queen who will know what it will be to rule with justice and mercy and with wisdom. This movie is all about that sense of mature freedom, not power for its own sake and not just individual empowerment, but as our DNA, as our core beliefs speak to. That our freedom is really ultimately fulfilled alongside and with each other. Now, Merida takes the place next to a whole variety of really recent and interesting women heroes. I don't like heroines, so I'm going to go with women heroes. I mean, Katniss Everdeen. We all know. Who doesn't know who who Katniss Everdeen is? Wow. Okay, that is market saturation, right? Okay, we got one. We got 99.9%. The hero of The Hunger Games. This movie would not be possible without The Hunger Games. Merida's signature skill, as Katniss's is as well, is with a bow and arrow. There's several other little shout-outs during this movie, including nightshade berries, the poisonous fruit that figures so prominently in this movie and also in The Hunger Games. But it's much more what Brave is about More than recalling just another fictional character, it really points to what's going on in our lives right now. What's going on in the world right now? What's going on as hierarchies start to feel their power recede from them and the way sometimes they can seek to crush and limit dissent? Many of us have read and I've talked in depth with many of you as well about the move what the Vatican has been doing over these last few months seeking to stifle the voices of nuns within its own tradition. And so it was very interesting a couple weeks ago when I was watching the Colbert rapport and this face came up. Hello, Professor Farley. That is Margaret Farley, the first ever Catholic, the first ever woman to hold an endowed chair in ethics at Yale Divinity School. She was my mentor. Every once in a while, I still keep in touch with her. And Colbert, in his persona of blowhard extraordinaire, called her out as the thing that was wrong with the Catholic Church. Because the Vatican called her out, Margaret Farley out, as being detrimental to the faith. Why? You lose the Margaret Farleys from my perspective and you've lost the entire church. And the Vatican seems to be in the midst of doing that exactly. Margaret Farley was hardly a radical. She was a dyed-in-the-wool feminist. She defined her feminism in this way, as a full commitment to the flourishing of all human beings with particular, though not exclusive, not exclusive attention to the experiences of women. Margaret Farley was very much part of this wonderful tradition of progressive traditionalists. People who recognize that there is wonderful reason and meaning in conserving that which is best, that which has been readily agreed to within our society, and expanding such teachings to evolve, to encompass new realities of a sometimes very complex world. Why is Margaret Farley being targeted by her own church? Because she is opening up the tradition. She did this regularly over and over and over again as a great scholar and even better human being. I remember in a medical ethics course once at Yale, we were talking about procreation and reproduction. And although she couldn't come out and say it because of her tradition, she still had a job to protect at that point, even though it wasn't within the Catholic Church, even though she is a sister of mercy. When she talked about the Catholic tradition of natural law, which is that the world is not an inherently fallen sinful place. And there is something of the divine shot through everything. And she said, well, what about that teaching of life begins at conception? That at the moment of the fertilized egg, you have the soul complete and perfect and whole. And she said, well, that's kind of a curious thing if we pay attention to science. Because um, that would mean that the vast majority of the souls in heaven Never, ever set foot upon the earth. And she just kind of left it there for us to draw our own conclusions. Expanding the traditions of our own church even further. She talked about the Catholic tradition, which is a wonderful tradition of talking about what really unites two people in love. One tradition is the procreative tradition. And she went on to say that the Catholic Church blesses all kinds of marriages between two people of the opposite gender who are not going to procreate. And the priest knows well enough that these people are not going to procreate. And so there's this whole other tradition in the Catholic Church that talks about, yes, the sexual act, but even more the sharing of two souls through the sharing of two bodies as a unitive act. And she says two adult people who love each other regardless of their gender Have the capacity to share in this kind of love. And this is the basis for justice and equity, not anatomy or plumbing. Those are my words, not hers. (laughs) (laughs) So why is Margaret Farley and other people like her? Why are they a threat? I think because as the hierarchy of the church loses its grip on sometimes its sanity and the safety of its people, Is because people like Margaret Farley and many other nuns, they exist not just for themselves and not just for their order and not just for their church and not just for their tribe, but for the flourishing of all people. This past week, I went to uh, nuns on the bus that some of you may know about nuns on the bus an awesome caravan of nuns traveling throughout, especially the sort of northeastern, midwestern part of the country, helping to voice in this budgeting process. I mean, we have major, major fiscal issues in this country. The trying to represent as we make the choice about what to cut and what to add and what revenue to raise and what programs to diminish to try to bring the voice to the table of those people who do not have voices in the corridors of power. As Sister Simone Campbell, who heads the nuns in the bus, said, we as sisters who are involved in the life of people who are economically marginalized, we know what it is like to walk with them, They are not abstractions to us. And so budgets have moral ramifications. And when I was at Nuns on the Bus last Friday, I could not help but think, my God, what a contrast. Because just a week before Friday, we had the first ever conviction of a member of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church for willfully, knowingly, and deviously, we might even say devilishly, protecting the safety and the name of the clergy against the safety of the children. It is mind boggling to think that the nuns are the problem with this church. <laughs> That's a real debate in our society right now, and it's bigger than just the Catholic Church. Compassion for the most vulnerable. Compassion for, as Jesus said, the least of these. And for those of us who would seek to raise up compassion as the kind of deepest connective power that we can summon within our lives. Compassion not on its own. Chagyam Trokpa, who was a Tibetan teacher, talked about such a thing as idiot compassion, which is compassion that is codependent. Or compassion that is enabling. We have to be wise in our compassion. But there are those who entirely almost dismiss compassion and empathy in our hierarchies, in our traditions, in our laws. Almost as if it's a moral failure of strength. I heard one of these voices this past week. It's a voice I personally don't like to hear that much. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh who stopped being funny a long time ago, even though he seems to love the sound of his voice, who makes people like Margaret Farley into what he calls "feminazis"? That proud, noble tradition of working for equality of all people makes one a feminancy. So there's a person who called up into a show, a young, angry man. There's a lot of those these days. Started complaining about women voters. And Lembaugh said these words, When women got the right to vote is when it all went downhill. I'm just repeating it. Because that's when vote started. It gets gets worse here. Hold on. Because that's when votes started being cast with emotion and maternal instincts. Now, in addition to the fact that it makes all women out to be mothers, which is not true, it's just so... Awful. What an awful misreading of making emotion and maternal instincts into somehow bad things. So I came up with first when I heard this, I came up with a story that thought, okay, this this will please Rush Limbaugh. This is a story of pure analysis, pure, cold logic, pure, cold, no emotional connection or empathy involved whatsoever. It's the story of a 10 year old boy who was very, very curious one day and so pushed a toddler into the deep end of a pool And pulled up a chair and sat there as the child sank to the bottom and was drowning. Now, do I think Rush Limbaugh approves this story? No. And is this story an absurd rejoinder to an absurd statement by Rush Limbaugh? Yes. But reason alone is not much good unless it is wedded to some humane Values. There is such a thing as idiot compassion. I know I've received it and I've given it. But there's also such a thing as idiot reason. Which is thinking that our intelligence, ungrounded by any sense of deeper connection to humane values, will somehow produce happiness and flourishing for many people. In fact, I don't even think it really produces happiness and flourishing for one person wedding our humane values to a deeper sense of true freedom to a true sense of noble power this is what is necessary if we really aspire personally and collectively to a real deep maturity especially in this time and in this age because like in merida's kingdom in brave power is being redistributed in all kinds of ways throughout the society right now and it's making some people very very nervous and it's making some people very very angry Perhaps you know that within just a few decades, America will become a majority-minority country. For some people, this is a cause of rage and viciousness and fear. And so sometimes hierarchies of all sorts, political and religious, they just want to clamp down. They just want to give in to that very human desire that all of us have when we are Faced with something we don't know and don't understand, we hold on. We grit our teeth. We clench our fists. But at the same time, these changes that are going on in society right now have also opened up opportunities for empathy and connection that have never yet existed in our society. My more metaphysically inclined friends have a name for this. They call it the shift. Now, I am much more pragmatic than I am metaphysical. I don't find a lot of desire in debating where exactly the energy of the whole universe is. Me, I'm more pragmatic. And I do think, however, that we are at a really profound evolutionary shift and movement in our lives. The recent Vipassana insight meditation retreat that I went on was led by Tara Brock, who is a wonderful meditation teacher and psychotherapist. And she referred to a study that was done by UCLA about stress and responses and reactions to stress. And what they found out in this study was that the baseline, not surprisingly, was what they called the fight or flight reflex. You know, we're stressed, punch out, retreat back. Now, that response which many of us are led to believe is just the natural one way or the other unless we learn something else was done after many many studies of men studies of women revealed something slightly different which is that although fight or flight is there there's other there's also another response that the researchers called tend and befriend And in times of stress, it's not just about punching out or retreating back, but also about reaching out for support. Now, Tara Brock said this isn't just true of women. Don't get me wrong, guys. But some of the theory behind this, the evolutionary theory, that as an adaptive response to stress in our environment, which we all deal with, that women were perhaps the first of our species to adapt into this way of being, this tend and befriend. And Tara's theory, and I tend to agree with her, is that this deeper empathy is an evolutionary response that is becoming more and more and more common in all of humanity. We can call it God consciousness. We can call it cosmic consciousness. We can call it unity awareness. We can call it Buddha nature. I don't care what we call it. But I believe it is real. By the way, if you want to see a neat little ten-minute video about the broad sweep of how this might be becoming true in our society and our world, this rise of empathy... It's a little video that you can Google called The Empathic Civilization on YouTube. Watch it. It's fun. So this evolution in and of love, this sense of a more expansive freedom. I recognize I've talked a lot about women today because largely in my life, if I'm going to be honest, I've learned more from women than I have from men. But I don't want to leave my fellow brothers out today. This sense of an expansive freedom, a connective freedom, it has really come home to me in my bones in the last couple of weeks through this man. Adam Yock, MCA, one-third, as some of you might know, of the Beastie Boys. Now, that's Adam Yock. I'm going to leave this one up for a while, this picture here screaming into the phone during the video for a fight for your right to party. You got to fight for your right to party. Now Adam Yock and the other two members of the BC boys, they were like me except a little bit older. I knew people who knew them. They were young, they were privileged, Jewish New Yorkers. And so when Licensed to Ill came out in 1987, I thought I had found my voice. Young boys behaving badly claiming their own freedom. I mean, I cannot tell you how much beer I drank back then when I still bought into the romance of alcohol to no sleep to Brooklyn. But, and I remember ignoring it at the time, but only for a couple of years, that this record, this recording was so shot through with misogyny and sexism and homophobia, so much so when I got to college a couple years later, I threw out my B.C. boys tape. <laughs> and then something interesting happened. Beastie Boys went and grew a soul. They grew beyond their immature, young liberty. And it started not too long after their greatest fame was achieved. And if you show this next picture, it's one of the last pictures of MCA, of Adam Yock, Nathaniel Hornblower, as he also liked to call himself. He was 47 years old and he died not too long ago. Not much older than I am. One of the things the Beastie Boys did collectively and especially Adam Yock did individually is recognize that freedom that exists only for itself or for its own gratification ultimately is not really freedom. And so they spent a lot of their time apologizing in writing. I mean, they wrote in 1994, hopefully time has healed our stupidity. And in an awesome song called Sure Shot, MCA saying these words. Some of you know these words are awesome words. I want to say a little something that's long overdue. The disrespect to woman has got to be through to all the mothers and the sisters and the wives and the friends. I want to offer my love and respect to the end. MCA grew as a person. MCA grew as a man. He knew what it was to commit to a family and not just his own gratification. He knew what it was to become a political activist that tried to give voice to those who did not have much of a voice. He became, and he died, a committed Buddhist. One of their favorite songs is one of his alone, not the three of them together, called Bodhisattva Vow. Some of you may know what a Bodhisattva is in the Buddhist tradition. A whole bunch of teachings about it, but it basically boils down to this. A bodhisattva is an individual who forgoes their own final enlightenment, the realization of nirvana, until all beings can realize their enlightenment. A bodhisattva lives to connect. There are signs of this ancient teaching that is becoming an evolving way of being and this kind of love all around us. I mean, just a couple years ago when I talked about it, Rob Bell, an evangelical pastor, wrote a book called Love Wins in which he outed himself gasp (gasps) as a universalist. (laughs) As a universalist who believed ultimately all would be reconciled with all and no one could, would or should be left out. This is an amazing thing to recognize for a moment that we sit in a tradition of universalism right here today. We sit in a universalist tradition. When we take that seriously, it changes us. It's changed me. When we sit in this tradition... And we ask ourselves, it's not just a teaching from long ago or far away. It is a teaching and invitation into an expanding, evolving love. I mean, this is part of our core values and core beliefs right here. Always has been our hope that justice, kindness and service are natural expressions of our spiritual growth, that we grow our own hearts. It will naturally lead us out to the lives of other people that are personal, are personal. Yes, and it has to be personal first. Personal transformation bears fruit in the natural sharing of who we are. Are with the communities in which we live been around here in the last few months and i apologize if you're new today and you haven't we have heard some remarkable stories of personal transformation and growth that have come in through and to and been blessings of wellsprings and have blessed wellsprings It's not a mistake that these stories have been featured during this last six months, which has been one of the most difficult moments, one of the most challenging moments in the evolution of our young life here at Wellsprings. And for those of you who don't get the weekly yet or didn't read it this past week in the holiday week, take a look. It's got very, very good news. We're actually doing incredibly well. We have all together responded to the evolutionary developmental challenges of this moment. So now is not the time to stand pat. Now is not the time to say, done evolving, done challenging ourselves. Now now is the time to recognize, as Homer Simpson said, this is a moment of Christ <laughs> Good shout out. It is a moment of Christunity. When things change, we open up ourselves to evolution and we can practice this wonderful universalist tradition. ...with more caring and more commitment. I've heard this regularly from a number of you over the last few months... ...that there has been an increasing desire to ask how we can form more partnerships beyond this community. We've had great responses to opportunities to serve. And I, so I've been spending a lot of time in discernment and meditation and prayer recently about how we might extend this further here at Wellsprings. Been around for a few years, you know that just about every week here at Wellsprings, every week out of the month, but one Sunday, we give our offering to the clinic. And the clinic has been a very worthy group to receive our offering. But we don't have a partnership with them. Because the nature perhaps of their institution is healthcare and healthcare involves privacy, it makes sense, or it's not an institutional priority for them. I've had these conversations with them. I understand they're putting their energy elsewhere. But we have very little connection with the lives of the people in the clinic. Please tell them we're busy. <laughs> Service that we offer simply with writing a check will not transform us. It won't change us. And I think that's the level at which service really makes a difference. Because it's not just about the world out there. It's about us in here. And so this is what I'd like to propose today, if you put up that slide, that we'll keep taking the collection for the clinic because they are a worthy group. And I've sent them a little notice saying that we'll be reevaluating what we're doing over the months to come. The first bullet up there is my aspiration, and hopefully our aspiration, is who we take our offering for will be of direct benefit to economically disenfranchised people in Chester County. It will be, like the clinic also, a financially transparent and healthy organization. But the third one we don't have yet. It will be a chance to grow in relationship through service and connection, not just give money, but build relationships. There's a UU minister, a guy named Ron Robinson, who is serving and has started a congregation in what he calls one of the forgotten places in the world, a poor as dirt little community in Turley, Oklahoma, outside of Tulsa. And he says he recognizes as he planted this congregation there that what he has changed and how it has changed him because they provide all kinds of social services to a place in the world that doesn't get many. He says his ministry has shifted from meeting needs. To meeting neighbors. That's my hope here for us. Is that we can meet our neighbors more fully in such a way that we will be changed as well. Not that top down we know best. We're the ones with the money. We'll change you kind of thing. But an opportunity to give and to help change and to be changed ourselves. Now I have not made a decision on this. I am not going to make a decision by myself. I would like your input. If you know a group that hits these three main points, let's talk. They might even need to be a group that really needs our money, maybe a startup. Our creativity and our opportunity to connect is only as limited as is our imagination. So this is my charge for us today, is to recognize we are the heirs of a beautiful universal tradition. That really says that love is the most powerful motivating force in the universe and to believe it even more with our actions. The final verse of that song, though I may speak with bravest fire, ends with these words. Let inward love guide every deed. By this we worship and are freed. We may not know it because sometimes our perspective on our own lives is very limited and very small. But if we can see our own actions as part of that evolving freedom, that connecting love, our lives will be empowered in a way that we could barely imagine. And we will be parts of the blessing and the healing of our world. May it be so for all of us. And amen. And may you live in blessing.